Vogue is throwing a party in the village tonight. Cocktails at my apartment, it's right around the corner. Apparently, hemlines are going up. This is the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. Each week, we gear up for Sunday's episode by analyzing all the moves and looking ahead at what's in store for the characters we've had so much fun watching for nearly seven years. We'll talk with psychologists, both armchair and actual, historians, fanatics, and critics, people who were there when it was all happening, people who can tell us what's realistic, what's not, and what we should be watching for. Will Dawn, Peggy, and Roger find happiness? Are they even capable of happiness? They've got six episodes left to figure it out. Here's where we're at. Season 7, Part 2. Not much has changed, besides Roger's facial hair. Our characters are still sabotaging their lives. Only now, some of them are millionaires. You're filthy rich. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. Peggy got the raw end of that deal. However, she has a hot date. I love you. And things seem to be moving quickly. Let's go to Paris. I know. Then comes the morning after. I'm not going to get on a plane with somebody I barely know. But you'd get to know him. Sounds like fun. It's nothing a couple aspirin won't fix. Meanwhile, Ken Cosgrove flirts with the idea of leaving advertising behind. You could quit your job. You could buy that farm. You could write your book. And just when you think he might go for it, he takes his father-in-law's job as the head of advertising at Dow Chemical and he can't wait to rub it in Pete's face. I'm going to be your client. And I hate to tell you, but I'm very hard to please. Don is also back to work. You're going to put your leg up on that chair, let the coat slide down, and show me how smooth your skin is. He's casting models for a chinchilla coat and dreaming about his old flame from season one. Rachel. Yes? You're not just smooth. You're Wilkinson smooth. When he wakes up, he learns that Rachel has died, but that her life, without him, had been a fulfilling one. So, naturally, he finds a mysterious waitress, and they have sex behind a dumpster. But when he wants a little more... You got your hundred dollars worth. You can go. Don Draper is denied. I watched The Return of Mad Men from the bed of a cheap hotel room, an oddly appropriate setting for it. Okay, it's, it's less seedy and depressing than I'm making it out to be. Actually, I was visiting family for Easter just outside of Washington, D.C. While in town, I happened to have lunch with a good friend of mine, Lulu Miller, host of NPR's Invisibilia, and she mentioned that her grandmother was married to a hardcore madman. My grandmother always said he was happiest on Madison Avenue advertising. Like, that is where he apparently came alive. I never saw this side of him. And so when he died, she covertly went and sprinkled his ashes on Madison Avenue in there's, I guess there's a stretch of it where there's like a center strip with trees. And she, you're not allowed to do that. Like, just sprinkled the (laughs) ashes of dead bodies on the streets of New York. It's not allowed. So she went at night, and that is where he remains. Naturally, I dropped my fork and pushed Lulu into the NPR studios. So I'm deeply underqualified to be (laughs) weighing in on this podcast, having only seen season one of Mad Men, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But her Invisibilia co-host knew a little bit more. I'm Elise. 
And yeah. you do you watch Mad Men? I do. I do, but I don't. Where, have so can I can I ask your your unqualified opinion on where you think the series is headed? Shit, I think that Don is going to end up liberated. That's what I think. Whoa! Okay. I think that I think he is going to. Well, maybe not. I hope that he ends up liberated in some way and like fundamentally changing. Isn't that kind of what's on the table? It's kind of like, what you want. Yeah. Like we're going to like cut loose like all of the kind of like gender roles and all of the everything that we're, what do you want? I have a question Lulu Miller. from the past. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Bring it. Does Joan end up okay? Is Joan okay? In this moment? Uh, she's both really okay. Nobody on this show and pretty is unhappy. Okay. I mean, nobody on this show is okay in the sense that like everything's okay. Fortunately, Linda Holmes hopped in to answer Lulu's question. But is she alive? She's alive. Is she like just still in a bad <laughs> relationship? I think that you would find that Joan is. If you're worried that Joan is a, is somehow a, a, a kind of persistently, endlessly tragic figure, I do not think that that is where Joan is right now. As NPR's cultural editor, Linda Holmes is infinitely more qualified than any of the rest of us in the studio to answer these questions. I was wondering about these dream sequences, both Brooks yeah, and, and the waitress yeah. uh, plot line, which seems yeah. so unhinged. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot we don't know about these scenes yet. I think that waitress, the the exchanges with the waitress, Diana, I mean, they have not overtly told you that some of them happened and some of them didn't or that they happened in a different order or at a different time. But the exchange that the two of them have, that he and she have, in which he just starts telling her. I had this dream about a woman I once knew. And I found out the next day she had just died. Someone dies, you just want to make sense out of it. But you can't. I mean, that's not that doesn't feel to me like something that is is uh, a conversation that people would really have. So I absolutely wondered whether there was a dream element. There's there clearly was a dream element to the Burt Cooper dance routine at the end of of the previous run. And there have been other dreams. There have been other visions on this show. He has had other visions on this show. So I don't know where they're going with that. I do think. There was an episode, uh, I believe it was in the last run, um, in which his secretary, while he was suspended, his secretary, Dawn, came to see him at his apartment. And he had been kind of lounging around in his bathrobe. And even though the only person who was going to see him was Dawn, his secretary, who happens to be one of the few black women working at the firm. And theoretically, he could tell himself that he's much, much higher status than she is in a bunch of different ways. Um, he goes to all the trouble of doing kind of the full Don Draper getup. He puts on the suit. He puts on the tie. He does his hair just to answer the door at his apartment when she drops something off. And so, you know, he is very much in control of trying to be in control of that narrative. And that goes all the way back to him assuming a different identity, you know? Right. Right. What? And you think... I mean, just to try and close the loop on the idea of him controlling his own narrative and that that slips away from him at times. Mm-hmm. It's basically under uh, under duress, under because of circumstances that he starts to lose that, or we don't really know why well, sometimes he hasn't been able to, to be as put together as others. He's always been vulnerable to to losing control in isolated moments. He's always been vulnerable to suddenly seeming 
like he he wasn't so cool, like he wasn't so controlled. Um, there are there were some moments with Betty that were like that, uh, where he would kind of fall to pieces, fall to pieces, and also lose his temper in a way that was unflattering yeah. to that I think he found unflattering to him. Um, but I don't right. know, and and I think. The ability of the people who write that show to keep Don Draper in that place, in that kind of suspended place where you hope for him to change. You haven't yet given up on him. Um, You hope for him to change, but you don't necessarily think he's going to. If you draw a parallel, and I think I can do this without too much much excess information, but if you draw a parallel to like Breaking Bad and Walter White, there came a point where they moved off of ambiguity – with Walter White. They moved off of the idea that, like, where is this man going to wind up? And you kind of knew probably what he was heading for. And, of course, that show begins on a premise that he's terminally ill. So you have much more of an idea of an ending in a general sense. Um, But with Don, they've been much more... They keep going back and forth between things he does that seem sympathetic and things he does that seem awful. They've gone back and forth between him being a really lovely parent who in in some ways is is very precious to his kids and wants to be a good dad and being a parent who is incompetent and and unable to to be emotionally present for his kids and their ability over a uh, seven seasons and it's it's not the same seven seasons as traditionally seven seasons would have been, but right, the right. the ability over such a period of years to hold a character in that place of tension um, so that people are legitimately unsure where you're going. Even Tony Soprano wasn't like that because he came with so much baggage right, about right. who he fundamentally was. Don is in that place where Don has done really hateful things and also really lovely things. And I think that's the skill of the show in a lot of ways and the skill of both the writing and the acting of that character is that they, they hold him in that spot. Before we wrapped up, Linda warned me about putting too much pressure on these last seven episodes. I am a real non-fan of kind of the culture of anticipatory anger toward the ends of shows. Yeah. People kind of sitting there with their arms crossed waiting to be disappointed and saying, you know, you owe me. You owe me the ending of this that I'm looking for. And there are some classic examples of that happening. I think the biggest one is probably Lost, where people have held grudges for years (laughs) about what they considered to be a flawed ending. And, And my feeling has always been if you are watching a television show thinking... I'm not enjoying it. I'm not getting anything out of it. But I'm hoping that at the end, the ending is going to make it all worthwhile. You should not be watching that show. You know, it's you got to just got to give people a little bit of a break. There is tremendous pressure. So tremendous pressure. Yeah. And while Linda Holmes may be urging a watch and see approach, just enjoying these final episodes here at the Mad Men pregame show, we are going to do this a bit differently. I wondered if talking to someone who has studied human motivations might have different insights for us. Coming up, I go to therapy. That's just ahead in a moment. Oh, God, Doc, what is it all about? Help me! I say, I say, that's a joke, son. We discussed this. What? I can't laugh at everything you say. Either it's funny or it's not. I don't know how you could control yourself. What exactly are you joking about? This is the Mad Men pregame show. I'm Ellen Horn. You know, I used to jump off the mountains. And it never occurred to me I had this invisible parachute. My mother loved me in some completely pointless way and it's gone. 
So there it is. She gave me my last new experience. And now I know that all I'm going to be doing from here on is losing everything. You feel lost. Damn it, how many times do I have to say this? I don't feel anything. Who better to explain Mad Men than an expert on feelings? Which one of these doorbells, I wonder? I think this is a psychological test. My producer Dan and I went to go see Dr. Stephanie Newman. Nice to meet you. Nice Come to meet you. I'm Ellen. Uh, and in case you were wondering, I rang all three doorbells. That tells you a little bit about my psychological type. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Newman. I'm a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City. I wrote Mad Men on the Couch, which is a book about the psychologies of the different characters of the very compelling TV show. Freud, you say. What agency is he with? Freud, who died in 1939, invented the talking cure. And 1960s in America, I think, was very, very heavy in uh, psychotherapy and people talking and using a couch and going multiple times a week. Is there one character in particular that you feel like illustrates a psychological type? These are really realistic psychological portraits. That's what draws you in. You could easily give Don a name. You could call him a, a narcissistic character, narcissistic personality. He's charismatic, definitely intelligent and um, successful. And underneath it, he's very fragile and does struggle sometimes to get through the day and is easily uh, wounded, injured, angered. Money's never enough. Alcohol's never enough. The food's never enough. The women are never enough. What is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. Don obviously didn't really have a mother because she died in childbirth, and then he ended up with this father who was a drinker and a stepmother who rejected him, and the father died. And all these poor, you know, poor Don, really, that's why you're sympathetic. I mean, it seems almost for almost every character, family is some sort of baggage for them and feels like a weight. Families are really stressful. <laughs> People talk about it a lot. He, he, he sets it up unconsciously so that he will be alone. When you have an early trauma, you can really uh, replay that over time. Like Don does get people to leave him. As much as he is very lonely and hungry, he unconsciously brings that. The loss of his mother uh, makes it happen over and over, which is sort of the tragedy if he was a Greek figure. It's been such an entertaining thing to to watch him fail. You know, it's like you want the best for him, but over and over again... We see Don doing just those self-destructive things that are so bad for him. You know, advertising, they were the masters of the universe back then. Some of it is the limitations of the, the kind of person that might be drawn to that. And it's possible to change if you work hard and if you're committed to change, maybe if you get some help. But these people are not engaged in a process. You know, Don journals or swims, and it's admirable. But then the next time something stressful happens, he's right back at the bottle. Or, you know, what we've seen is that without the supports of a very solid relationship and home and job, Don does not do well because he's fragile and because he has the pattern of provoking um, abandonment. Even as he's been very successful, we could see that they've set it up that his position is precarious right now. Let's talk about the Don and Peggy relationship a little bit. She's kind of his work wife. They are really interesting in, in terms of their relationship. Sometimes people who um, are like Don don't see people as separate people, and they are, they're, they're just a thing to them, an object. Everyone thinks you do all my work, even you. I don't want to make a career out of being there so you can kick me when you fail. 
they may use them as a, an extension to make them look good or not even be aware of a of a division so he which seemed certainly how it was for him and Peggy until she quit left yes, to go to the yes. firm with Ted Shaw and then the merger brought her back into the same relationship then her and Ted Shaw's relationship sort of blows up her and Don's relationship yet again and where we are now is sort of they're they're in this new she's been his his supervisor on the Burger Chef account. Um, Well, he kind of sucked what he could out of her a little bit, used her, and then she put her foot down. Ted did the same thing. Um, But she also is able to um, rise above at the end and, um, you know, unfortunately has to take it as a woman for a while, but um, is able to get a, a leg up. I don't know if she'll stick up for him. She may be Don's only real friend. Can you give me a drink? How long are you going to go on like this? One last question for you. What would you do if Sally Draper walked into your office for therapy? I love Sally Draper. She's one of my favorites. First of all, she's one of the ones who actually seemed to be engaged in a real therapy. You watched her. She played cards with the doctor. Maybe they talked about things. She seems resilient uh, against the backdrop of this difficult family situation. Sounds like she's going to make it. She does. I, I, You feel empathy for her. She seemed to have the genetic loading of depression and substance abuse and other, and maybe um, some turbulence in the household. But she's smart. She seems to be resilient. She sticks up for herself. Um, she doesn't take anything from anybody. Uh, and I think that she, uh, she's the product of turbulent times, product of a turbulent household. Probably will make her stronger. And she'll. I would love to treat somebody like that. That's great. I, th- I think I may have some clients for you. <laughs> On next week's show, I'll talk with Sally of a sort. The Mad Men pregame show is produced by James Ramsey, Dan O'Donnell, Jenny Lawton, Paula Schumann, Caitlin Thompson, and Irene Trudell. Special thanks this week to Charles Michelet and Jessica Reedy. I'm Ellen Horn, watching on Sunday night, martini in hand, and back next week. No need to thank me. That's what the money's for. Do you know how great you're going to look on a book jacket?